we've only got one kiddo um and she's she's young enough that i have not had to do the sort of calvin and hobbs dad thing where when you don't want to explain something you don't know something you could theoretically just make up some asinine explanation for it i i will say on a on a serious note i'm generally of the belief that by consistently not exaggerating and telling stories that are not real to your kids you really you actually gain a lot in the long run in terms of they know that when you're praising them it's real they know that when you're explaining something to them it's okay to say hey you know as a dad like there's some this is this is complicated and you don't need to know about it right now i'm happy to share it with you and it'll make more sense but don't stress about it like let mom and dad worry about it This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpre. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all new, all natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, Go to Solpri.com to check out the anti-chafe bomb today. And that's S-O-L-P-R-I.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Funk. My guest today is a self-described not-so-great sprinter turned distance runner. We'll ask him why he quit because, you know, quitters never win. Um, he's the founder and CEO of Endeavor Run, uh, the principal at Ticonderoga Advisory, where he's an executive coach. He has his education doctorate in adult learning and leadership. He's an organizational psychologist, um, dad joke aficionado. Welcome to the show, Dr. Jake Tuber. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jesse. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I would start off with just asking you, do you, can you tell us a dad joke? But that's not necessarily how dad jokes work. So I'm just hoping that they get peppered in, you know, here I'll and there. I'll absolutely pepper them in. I mean, it, there is a bit of like, if you're a jad joke connoisseur, it's sort of like being a stand-up comedian where somebody's like, oh, you're funny, tell me a joke. And it's like, it's all in the telling and the setup. The dad jokes, it's all in the moment. It's all in the bad puns as they come. And if I just tried to, to tell you a dad joke right now, I think dads everywhere would understandably frown. And I don't want to do that. So I appreciate the, the nod and I will do my very best to pepper a few in there unexpectedly. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping it's an educational lesson because I have my friend, Kevin, who I'm going to send this episode to. So, Kevin, if you're listening, stay, keep, keep hey, Kevin away. Kevin, um, buy low, sell high, get out early. All right. <laughs> He's got all he needs to know. And, and the thing that I want Kevin to learn, and hopefully you, the listener, if you're not Kevin, um, is what a pun actually is. Because he seems to have a real hard time with that when he was here at my house maybe a month ago. Everything seemed to be a pun to him. So I'm hoping we can, we can you know educate him what an actual pun is and, and take up his dad jokes to the next level. That is important. You know, and I will say that you don't have to be able to linguistically differentiate puns from other kinds of dad jokes in order to make them effectively. Uh, but it certainly can up your game. Uh, and that's something I think, you know, with rigorous study into sort of pun syntax and the subtle differences in that, like that will take your average dad and make them a truly excellent father. And so that's really the main difference between sort of poor and great fathers is really their, their understanding of the syntax that differentiates puns from other types of dad jokes. So I'm, I'm here for that hundred percent. I think that leads me to the question. Um, is this 
going to be a new subsidiary of Ticonderoga where you focus on taking dads to the next level? There's a lane, you know, there's a lane there. There's a, well, clearly there's a market, right? The dad market is like up there with funeral directors. You got a target market that's always growing. And so I think that there's obviously uh, clearly a need here. Uh, I don't know of anyone else who's serving that particular market need. I don't know what the economics of the model look like. Uh, but yeah, maybe after this, you and I will have uh, another LLC to add to the portfolio that is really focused on, forget forget just a subset of Ticonderoga as a subsidiary. I see this as a standalone. I see this as a, a multi-billion dollar C-Corp within a few years. Right. Well, I mean, you said buy low, sell, hell, sell high. So we should probably exit our current ventures and then just do a joint venture. You know, like, of course, I have to wait till after July, after my uh, baby's born. Of course, but, you know, you got to be an official dad to be a part of this uh, particular club. Um, but yeah, I, I think we could, uh, as as the kids say, take it to the moon. Yes. I no, And it's good to know what the kids are saying these days, because uh, my toddler seems to just want to watch Encanto over and over and over again. And that's oh. really the extent of, of what I've been exposed to. So uh, the more that you can tell me about what the kids are saying, I think that's more fodder for dad jokes. So, right. yeah, I can already see this being a self-fulfilling prophecy here. Well, I know for sure if we have a boy that we can't name him Bruno now, otherwise we wouldn't be able to talk about him. Yeah, so. no, you can't say a thing about him. It's it's treacherous. In fact, actually, uh, you know, Florida state legislature has been getting a lot of heat for their new law on don't say gay. They're actually considering a new law about not saying Bruno just because of the popularity of the, the film. Uh, so you can see how that sort of is already, you know, traversing state borders. So yeah, make sure that, that Bruno is really, Bruno is, is going to be up there with sort of Karen as far as names that, you know, your average person just can't consider naming after 2020, and, and rightly so, rightly so. It's a nice name, which is too bad, but yeah, we can't talk about it. Yeah, I, I feel bad for two people in this situation, both Florida man because of his uh, constant exploits, and my grandmother because her name actually is Karen. Um, so yeah, that's <laughs> she gets that well, unfortunate she reality. She's a woman of her time, and nobody will falter for that, you know? <laughs> that's, that's very true. Um, so we'll try to shift a little bit. Otherwise, we're probably just going to have an hour of impromptu stand. This isn't what your, your audience is tuning in for. I'm, I'm shocked. If, if anyone's still listening. If anyone's still listening. Well, frankly, I, I don't know what my audience is tuning in for uh, because I, I don't get enough feedback. So if you, please give me feedback. If, you, if there's comments, the comment section, if you're on YouTube, youtube.com slash Solpre, you can see the video version. Um, you can see Jake's sweet, like, Books, bookshelf and plants in the background. I need to, my bald spot is going to show despite my face <laughs> on camera. So I'm going to. Yeah, he's got his nice hat on now. I've just got like, I've got a bookshelf in the background, but it's kind of a mess. Uh, whereas your setup seems a lot more, you know, put together. I do. I have since even pre-pandemic, I have had to do a lot of hours of facilitating uh, training, learning development sessions and stuff via Zoom. And so having a a setup that was reasonably professional and not terribly distracting uh, was sort of the goal. Uh, and so this is what I've settled on. It's uh, it's done okay. I also don't, you have to have, I've noticed that it's good to have obviously like, you know, a, a good color scheme of books in the background, but I don't mm -hmm. want anybody to actually be able to read the titles, you know, right. just enough to have some intrigue, like, oh, well, he's got some yellow books and some orange books and it looks like a, a, a beige book, you know, just something out there, but I don't want anyone to actually know what I have at least claimed to have read by the bookshelf behind me. Yeah. Well, I'm largely in the way of my own bookshelf. If, you know, I think there's something to that. Um, my wife's, uh, she's really into cookbooks 
Uh, if if you need to get her a present and you don't know what to get, get a cookbook. She'll probably be happy. But she organizes them by color, which drives me mad because then I don't know where the books that I want are because I don't know what color they are. Um, but it looks beautiful. So there's there's probably something to that. Yeah, no, I, I don't have an eye for design that's that nice. Um, I just figure like a blend of colors, titles that are just too far away to read is sort of the way to go. And um, I haven't been embarrassed by it yet, but who knows? Maybe by the end of this episode, things will totally change. That's a possibility. It could. I, you know, I think the only problem you'll run into, which actually maybe isn't a problem, because then you can lean into the like dad cheap kind of meme, um, you know, dads don't spend any money, is that you can just never upgrade your camera ever again, because if we get a nicer camera, then people might actually be able to read the titles. It's actually a professional decision to make sure that I'm operating at 420 at all times. <laughs> Uh, so that nobody can read the books. You know, it's interesting you say that. I was joking with a to friend. To clarify, that that's a that's a pixel resolution, not a time of the that's, day. Yes, no, it was <laughs> it was not a, a drug joke. Actually, I would be the last person to uh, be able to claim to to make such a reference. But uh, that's right, it was a pixelation joke. Um, you know, I was joking with a friend at the start of the pandemic that I wanted. This is, I think, it's a decent idea for a business. But like, you go to publishers and you tell them, all right, anytime somebody buys a book from you. And like a like an ebook, something for the Kindle, et cetera. For an extra dollar, you will ship them a cardboard cutout of that book's cover so they can stick it on a bookshelf. Because that's one of the problems with ebooks is you want to be able to go and browse your own books. You want to have your books up there so that your friends can see it and maybe get interested. You can share a book. But if everything's on your Kindle, that's harder to do. So what about like just extra dollar cardboard cutout for every ebook you have that you can just stick on your shelf? I think it's a genius idea. Uh, tell me, how does that not work? You know, who wouldn't do who wouldn't do that? I think that definitely would go well um, with with dads. I think that's I think that's your market. So I think that you're thinking in your side your own lane for sell, sure. Sell to who you know. You know, sell to who you know. And right. I, <laughs> that's right. I, I I don't know though. Um, it, you have a. I'm trying to think of what the potential problems are. One. You have friends over. Maybe we don't have friends anymore because of the pandemic. So nobody comes to your house anymore. So not a problem. Perfect for Zoom rooms. Yep. I don't know about the dollar price point. I'm, I'm concerned about that. Postage is increasing. That's fair. Yeah, maybe you make it uh, plus shipping, a little handling fee as well. I think that's reasonable. Your biggest issue is probably just like, you know, getting publishers, you know, trying to trying to get different publishing houses to produce and agree to that would be probably a nightmare, I imagine. Probably. Um, but I think there's something to it. And, you know, the, the issue that I think you were probably getting at is if a friend comes over, they pull the book off the shelf, they realize it's just a hollow piece of cardboard. What you can then say is, oh, actually, that's where I hide a lot of expensive jewelry. Um, you just sort of use it as if it's an excuse. Like this is actually never, I don't even like the book. It's just, it's a secret to deter burglars. They would never, no burglar wants to open James Joyce while they're trying to rifle through your drawers, you know, but right. behold, that's where I, you know, that's where I keep the hope diamond. Um, so that I feel like that's your out if you're in that situation. But yeah, I think the publishers are probably the main issue. But yeah, we can talk about the price point. We can get into that. There's some there's some wiggle room. Yeah, I, I think at that point, if your if your uh, buddy has your empty bookshelf and then their book, and then you tell them, oh, that's right, hide the jewelry. He'll say, well, why isn't there anything in there now? And then you got to tell him, well, you know, because you know, I, because it's on loan to the Smithsonian. Well, so I, I guess it could be on loan. I was gonna, I was gonna try to come up with a sob story and then try to get a fiver out of it. 
Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of different directions. I just, I just felt like I feel like oh we're, you were having a hard time. We had to had to put it to the pawn shop. Could you buy dinner tonight? You right. Know, yeah, like, you want to kick in a little extra for the beer. Right. Right. Yeah, something there. You know, there's something, something there. like that. I like it. I'm with you. But I guess I guess that that's the difference between us. Maybe you're a good person and I'm not. Um, <laughs> Listen, the fact that I was so quick to think of that as a potential way to make an excuse, I think illustrates the exact opposite of what you just said, uh, the pathology involved in, in coming up with a litany of excuses to cover up for the inadequacy of cardboard book covers. Um, I've got a lot of a lot of soul searching to do there. So I think you're off the hook. Or, or maybe there's something that like, as we talked about there in the dad territory, territory that kind of goes with that. You just kind of come up, come up with stories quick. Is it do kids need lots of stories? Or is it just like you gotta come up with all stories all the time? You just so know in, we've, in we've only class? got we've only got one kiddo. Um and she's she's young enough that I have not had to do the sort of Calvin and Hobbes dad thing where when you don't want to explain something, you don't know something, you could theoretically just make up some asinine explanation for it. I, I will say on a on a serious note, I'm generally of the belief that by consistently not exaggerating and telling stories that are not real to your kids you really you actually gain a lot in the long run in terms of they know that when you're praising them it's real they know that when you're explaining something to them it's okay to say hey you know as a dad like there's some th this is this is complicated and you don't need to know about it right now i'm happy to share it with you and it'll make more sense but don't stress about it like let mom and dad worry about it i think that'll probably happen a lot in a, in a couple of years. i hope um i could also see myself just uh you know making up silly excuses to get out of conversations that are probably uh not more difficult but just uh heavier than i want to in a given moment um but it's cool to have a curious kid i'm sure you'll have a really curious kid too it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice problem to have if you get there um but again mine right now is mostly just like can we talk about bruno that's really that's that's right where we're, yeah. and then you just turn the song on and question answer hear it again and then she wants to hear another song and yeah you know I, I imagine it must have been much easier when you and I were growing up to be parents once you decided screen time was okay because the options were limited so like you know my dad would put on Sesame Street and like that was it I was Sesame Street or Sports Center I couldn't mm -hmm. like the choice my daughter knows there's like if she doesn't like this song she can literally listen to any other song in the world anywhere she wants she wants to watch a video she knows it's literally accessible basically anywhere that she's going to be mm -hmm. and the fact that she already knows that despite the fact that we you know even in the pandemic try to keep screen time basically to a minimum is terrifying like the the extra choice they have does not make it easy because she starts a song and she wants to go to the next song and then the next song whereas you know, in the past, you turn on the radio, it's like, sorry, kid, this is the radio. Like, it's on. You want it on or not? That, that's it. So maybe we should have pretended that we only had, like, rabbit ear television for a while. That would have probably been a lot easier. Yeah, it may be easier, but maybe not the, the same reality. I'm forgetting his name. There's a psychologist on YouTube. Oh, well, I'm sure he's an expert. No. He, no more. He, uh, he caters towards game to gamers, like, in their their problems yeah dr k there we go I know that. um he does seem he has some really interesting uh no he's not a psychologist he's a psychiatrist he has his he has his md uh, oh forget it forget it oh man md jeez <laughs> i just i just get that right so not that dr k will ever listen to this but um he was talking about you know there's the idea right now about screen time is terrible and you know don't let your kids have screen time or whatever and I think he was 
there, he was talking about a couple of studies that have been done. It was, it was basically like the tendency towards like attention shifting or like ADHD like symptoms, even though a kid may not have actually have clinical ADHD, like the tendency towards that behavior is more associated with like things like YouTube, where you can go this to this to this to this to this, instead of like sitting down and watching long form content or listening to it like this podcast. Um, so it wasn't necessarily the screen time in particular, but the like attention shifting nature of the medium that was being taken in by the kids. That makes, that makes a lot of sense to me intuitively. I've not seen those studies. And I will say that, yeah, like my daughter knows that she can kind of dial up anything on command and we're pretty, we try to be pretty strict of like, no, let's listen to the end of this song. And the next one will come on when it comes on. It's, you know, there's an element of at its core, it's an element of self-direction and control, which is, can you be the one to sort of decide what's coming on? Or do you have to wait until something else, whether it's Spotify or a TV station or an adult says so, and your ability to kind of, you know, get those reinforcements and rewards, especially at these younger ages, when that kind of behaviorism is really powerful based on that, I think is really important. So I agree. I don't think there's I don't think it's literally the blue light of the screen, I'm guessing is probably not as harmful as we'd like to believe so much mm -hmm. as the, the kind of ability to constantly shift and pick and choose and dictate your reality becomes something you become pretty reliant on. Um, and it can be it can be hard to watch. I mean, I, I haven't been out much at all since the start of the pandemic when I have not too long ago, we were actually uh, we were in Austin, Texas for one of our endeavor on retreats down there running retreats and afterwards myself and a couple of coaches and a couple of the folks who uh, were local that were participants stuck around. We drove out about 40 minutes outside of Austin, Texas. There's one of my favorite restaurants in the world, this giant barbecue pit out there. Um, that's really cool. And we get there and we're sort of waiting and it's, you know, it's mostly outdoors. It's inside, outside. It's a beautiful day. It's, it's 78 degrees in Texas in February. There's no humidity. It's stunning. And there's a family there that's waiting online behind us to try to get a table. And this mother, I think it was a mother, I'm making an assumption there. Uh, the kid's got an iPad out, right? You're in the middle, like you're 45 minutes outside of a city. Obviously you have perfect service. So the kid's got an iPad there and he's watching something and the mother like goes to move it and the kid loses his mind. And so the mother, obviously you're in public and I would do exactly what she did, which is put the damn iPad back in front of the kid. This kid looked about seven or eight. Mm -hmm. uh, so this, you know what I mean? Like this should have been... It was clear that this is much less a product of just being exposed to media so much as sort of needing it as a safety blanket. It is mm -hmm. something and, and that becomes relying on the control that you have over getting that dopamine fixed the way you want that I think is is problematic. And as a parent, it's uh, it's tough. I mean, I, I don't know how we'll navigate it in the future. I'm optimistic, but it's tough. And because, um, yeah, when my little ones were trying to get her to get her shoes on and stuff to get out the door to go to daycare. Uh, it's much easier for me to put on her shoes or my wife to, you know, do her hair into pigtails if she's like listening or watching something than if she's, you know, realizing that she's leaving now. <laughs> so right. I get it, but, but it can, it can be a slow creep into, okay, like you're never taking the iPad in front of the kid or that's in front of the kid away. So I get it, but anywho. This is entirely speculation on both of our parts, but so I'm going to ask you, but you know, for you, the listener, neither of us are basing this on anything besides conjecture. I, I, it makes me curious about, so like, especially as disenfranchised, 
um, or really any sports endeavor and building businesses, anything that you want to build over a long term relies on delayed gratification, which means a certain amount of suffering for a period of time, often longer than most people are comfortable with to eventually come upon the reward that you're after. Do you have any inkling that like being reliant on some of this instant gratification behavior from such a young age, do you think that might lend itself to us having fewer people growing up that are interested in like long-term delayed gratification kind of behaviors? It's not a, it's not an absurd hypothesis in any way. And I don't know of any psychological. Like I said, it's not based on anything. It's, this yeah, is just no, it's, a, it's, it's reasonable speculation though, right? The thread that I, as I understand you there, that you're pulling on is this notion of, are we training folks to be so focused on short-term gratification that there's just less of that? Right. My, they, they, they basically don't have that, that muscle to. Yeah. To, so, so my intuition is, is a fewfold, which is ultimately I don't, worry about it for a couple reasons. So one, I do think that muscle uh, can be built later. Um, you know, there's famous delayed gratification studies. Everyone knows them. Well, not everyone. A lot of people know about the marshmallow study. A lot of people do the marshmallow study wrong and it pisses me off every time. Yeah, I well, see they, they do it wrong. And also <laughs> recently the data was reviewed and actually the, the, the actual reasons for the delayed gratification had much more to do with socioeconomic status of the participant mm. and their expectation as to whether or not there would be gratification. The idea being, if you don't have a lot of money or means, you can't rely on there being two more later. So you eat now when there's food as opposed right. to waiting for something better. So, so a, a reanalysis of the statistical data there actually revealed very different conclusions. And that was an important finding. Uh, I do think, I do think it, you will see probably I guess you could you could maybe think about the hypothesis that you'd see people displaying less long-term grit, uh, although those elements do tend to be pretty trait-specific as well. Um, so the extent to which they're malleable is, is going to revert back to the, you know, the bell curve of an individual person's particular genetics. But I would say the real reason that I'm not too worried about it is one, what's considered long-term is also shifting because mm -hmm. everything is happening more short-term you won't need to be long-term gratified the way you and I may have been or our parents' generation where you work on the farm for 40 years and then eventually, you know, you have enough fruit or whatever, or you sell the livestock. And now long-term is like a month. So to some extent, they're kind of just getting primed for the new long-term. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I would say too, is that the incentive structures that are still in place in the sort of middle-late post-capitalism world that you and I are in are still very much going to reinforce and reward the kinds of longer-term endeavors and those will ultimately kind of, uh, those will attract folks to actually pursue things in a slightly longer term way. Now, if you look at this at a macro level, there are many more people who build and sell a company after a short amount of time. I'm not talking about just like the you know, person who sells an idea to another Silicon Valley after coding a prototype for $10 million, like that does happen. But in general, the, the lifespan of companies in terms of when they're built and when they get acquired or moved on has gotten shorter as time has sped up. But I do think there's still going to be a lot of, frankly, uh, wealth created by folks who have the patience that's needed for certain things that just take more time, even if that more time is, relatively speaking, less than what more time means today as the world just gets faster. Mm -hmm. So I do think, I do think the, the void will be filled. It's a, 
it's a vacuum that uh, is begging to be filled. But yeah, the, the chances that like a given kid might develop a little bit less grit or resilience or ability to uh, do things long-term because of the instant gratification they're constantly being thrown, that's just plausible. Uh, not out of the question. I wouldn't worry too much about that necessarily as a parent. I think it's part of a larger parenting strategy. I wouldn't do anything explicitly to avoid it, but it seems plausible. I think it kind of goes into uh, obviously a debate or discussion that I don't know if we'll ever truly have an answer to, but maybe I'm simply too naive. Um, is the whole, I mean, the whole nature versus nurture debate, right? Like how much influence do we actually have on anybody's given personality or innate desires, um, you know, whatever you want to call it. I, I know I cannot remember the book now for the life of me, uh, but there was a book I was reading once that talked about, you know, it had to have been some kind of like self-help book or something, you know, something like that. Um, a chapter about like attributes of high achieving people or something. And it was like, if you have, you know, X five of these, then you're probably pretty well off. You know, if you're, if you have seven of them, then you're considered high achieving. If you have, then there's 10 total or whatever. And I hit like all 10 of them. And they weren't like things I learned. It was just behaviors I've always felt like were me. And, but I also know familially, we're pretty like competitive people, you know, my, uh, my siblings largely played sports or did other things. Um, so that's, again, like, is it a family culture thing? Is it, you know, genetic, obviously, because it's family. Um, and it seems like, to answer my own question about, you know, short attention spans and missing out on delayed, delayed gratification, you may just end up getting people that would self-select for that anyway, continue to do so regardless of, whatever happens with watching YouTube on uh, an iPad or not. I don't know, but again, it's just conjecture. For that though, at a societal level, right? Which is to say that if it's, if we don't want people self-selecting in to that more than we'd like, we probably want to take steps to avoid it. Like the obvious one is like addictive behaviors, like gambling, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the end of the day, the prevalence of like, you know, sports gambling that's now in every state on your phone everywhere Generally speaking, like if it just means that more people who could have fallen down a hole had they been born in Las Vegas are now going to fall down a hole because they're born anywhere. So the question is, do we want to decide as society, let's sacrifice some of our sort of independent individualized rights or access to things because we don't know. Well, I mean, you're, you're getting at some pretty interesting sort of Rawlsian questions about the nature of sort of how we want to construct a society, given what we assume an individual can be responsible for. And I think right. that's a more interesting part of the questions around nature versus nurture. My, my good friend and, and one of my business partners, uh, Matt Fitzgerald, the, the running author who many yep. of your listeners will Matt's been on the know. show. Yeah, so Matt likes it when you ask him the nature nurture question about runners or something like that, he likes to say it's mostly both. Uh, and it's a good answer. And, and it is, I think the more interesting question is, all right, so suppose it's nurture. Does that mean that we should say someone is responsible for it? I mean, how much of nurture do we have a volition or, or conscious mm -hmm. control over? To your point, whether or not your competitiveness is actually wired because one of the sort of theories of person, you know, personality traits are largely pretty stable over time. Most conceptions reduce to the big five traits that are generally speaking pretty 
pretty biologically wired. They're cross-cultural. Their manifestations are different. There's a lot of conceptions of personality trait that, generally speaking, map to that pretty nicely. And there are certain traits that generally make people more likely to be seen as a leader, more likely to be seen as this, more likely to be competitive. Whether or not that's actually because of a genetic wiring or it's because you were inculcated in a family lifestyle whose family climate and culture was very competitive because of the nature of your parents' work or the nature of the society you were in or the social circles you ran in, independent of like the epigenetics or genetics of it. Either way, that's not something like you being raised to be competitive is not something where like you chose to be a competitive person. And so I, I think that's a really more interesting question, which is to say that if someone is looking at, say, like the success of somebody because they really went out and competed, it's not that they weren't successful or they didn't compete or we shouldn't try to understand what about their situation made them that way. But we as a society, given I think a lot of our assumptions around meritocracy, like to say, well, that's that was you. That was a conscious choice. You're made, you know, it's when someone else is sleeping and sleeping late, you were up grinding as if that was really like an actual choice that got made the morning you got out of bed at six and someone else hit snooze. That choice, so to speak, was made for us in many very, very hard to measure ways long before that morning ever occurred. Um, and that has a lot of implications, I think, or at least should have a lot of implications. I don't think it does, but should have a lot for how we think about ourselves as people, how we work with others constructively, how we think about setting up a society. It, it, it has some real permutations. So the, you're right. I don't think there's a definitive answer to the nature versus nurture question on any domains. It's definitely a bit of nature. People ask me this about leadership all the time in my work as executive coach. Are leaders <laughs> born or made? And no, there are definitely some folks who have traits and characteristics who across most situations are likely to be in positions of leadership. Like there are there is, there's a reason that the sort of trait theory of leadership hasn't gone away. It's because there's evidence for it. That doesn't mean they're always going to do that. And it doesn't mean that if you don't have those things in certain situations, you can't either build skills that compensate for that or build attri- like you know competencies that really help you. Or in certain situations, your particular traits are actually more conducive to leading. Same thing for athletics, same thing for parenting, same things we're talking about. I like the term mostly both. Um, but I think the more interesting questions are not necessarily what, but so what, and then what. It's a lot to unpack there. Right. <laughs> um, let's see if I can go back through my own thoughts. It, sometimes I think about the, the, the conversation about what at least the U.S. North American paradigm is like, I'm responsible for myself. If I am not succeeding, it's my fault. And I definitely lean into that um, because I'm in control of things that I can control, right? There are plenty of things I can't control. I can't control who my parents are. are, are. I can't control uh, where I grew up. I can't control um, you know, what, what other people the, what do. What are some of the things that you feel very confident you can control? Uh, I mean, I can control my limbs, at least for now. You know. Usually. Right, Usually, I mean, but not right, always. If, if someone kicks you, if someone hits you in the knee, your your leg's gonna flail out. So there's right. obviously sympathetic nervous system stuff. That's... Or lately, um, going through some like rehab and doing some uh, dry needling. For if the listener's not familiar, yes, you get, you get needles uh, shoved into your muscles, and then you get electrodes attached to that, so it makes your muscles um, move. It's kind of like a tens unit if you're familiar with that as well. Just it's a like more really invasive. really unpleasant acupuncture. I've had. 
150 dry needles put into my right hip in the last year alone. Yeah. And I'd scream like a a baby every time. And I think of myself as a reasonably tough person around physical pain. But effective. It's effective. Yeah, it is effective. It's effective. Um, so yeah, I mean, but that's where I go. Obviously, this is a philosophical hole. We could get so far down that I'm not reasonably smart enough to talk about it anymore. But you know, there's a, at least a belief that I do have control over some things, you know, that I can open a door. Obviously there's like, there are exceptions to rules, but you come at it from the perspective of like, this is a generally accepted principle, right? There's always going to be exceptions. Um, in the nature of humanity, very rarely is something absolute um, this comes from like my math background doing like math proofs where you have to, you know, you have to prove that this is actually this way. When, and so for you, the listener, if you're not familiar and maybe Jake as well. So when you're doing a proof, if you want to disprove something, which is much easier than proving something, you, if you make a broad statement, like, um, I, I can't even think like, you just have to show one example. You have to show one example where it doesn't work. Prove the totality, mutual exclusivity. Of right, something. right. You only have to show one example one time. It doesn't work. So right. it's much easier to disprove something, which is why you have to come at the idea of control and the ability to control from the place of the vast majority of the time. This is an accurate statement. Well, certainly, I will certainly grant that, for the sake of just philosophical discourse, I'll grant that everyone operates as if it's an accurate statement, but let me, let me right. push on it. Little, okay. Right. Just let's let me, so take it. Yes. Certainly in the U S but in general, humans as a species tend to believe that we have a degree of, of control. We know we don't control the weather. We know we necessarily don't control everything that we do because some of it's a product of our nature or our nurture in the past. But we think like, if I'm going to get up and go open the door, that's all me. I'm making a conscious choice. Mm-hmm. I should be held responsible for that choice because I could have chosen not to. I could have seen other paths and didn't do them, et cetera. The really interesting question, and, and this gets into like subtle definitions of, of causal determinism, is is that choice? I mean, yes, it's originating in you, and then I can't say it's originating in anyone else. But is that really something that's fully of your own volition? That's a subtle question about free will. Like you're taking a drink of water right now on camera. Now you could in theory choose not to, but whether or not your decision not to because you wanted to illustrate a point about choice, that architecture was built about your desire to adhere to what your guest on the show was saying, et cetera. That was built long before that very moment. Right. And so what you're getting into is our subtle you know, distinctions, what I think some philosophers would call soft determinism versus hard determinism. So for listeners out there who are interested, soft determinists, someone like Daniel Dennett, professor at Tufts, very famous, he endorses a view what he would call compatibilism, which is this nation that, yes, we're the product of a lot of things that we don't control, and thus our actions are ultimately fed by them. But essentially, and I'm over-reducing this here, in your head, there's like a moment of, of sort of the fact that it's attributable to your mind, and it passes through some filters, et cetera, and we're going to say that you're responsible for your actions. Whereas a true hard determinist almost feels like a fatalist, who's basically saying like, yes, in theory, it's passing through those prisms, but those prisms themselves were the result of past action and genetics. And so we are basically just kind of vessels for consequences in that way. And 
the challenge for that view, I think, in some ways, and I struggle with this a lot in terms of the implications for you know how I do things day to day, is I think philosophically that view holds a lot of power. It's it's not how we're wired genetically. We are genetically wired for the promulgation of our species to feel like we have control. It makes us achieve and do things that makes us more likely to survive, thrive, and reproduce. So certainly our brain is trying to trick us into thinking we have control, assuming mm -hmm. we assuming we don't. Um, and if we do, there's a question of sort of how much is reasonably attributable to a person um, as opposed to the circumstances they found themselves in. And I don't know, I, I don't know the exact answer to that. I know, um, you know, philosophers like Harris and others are, are more on the hard deterministic camp and, and there's good points for that. I, I do think there's some issues around, around free will, but it's really, there's also a lot of incentive in place for us sort of, and to your point, the North American cultural paradigm to ignore that because we have an entire system of meritocracy that's based on the notion that you can have control over your own destiny if you just work harder. Mm -hmm. And if what we're ultimately saying is those choices to work harder are not actually really attributable to you, but are much more the product of things that happen to you, whether it's your genetics, epigenetics, or circumstances, that poses a series of problems for meritocracy. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot of people really fear that. And I don't think we should construct, right? So that the idea, oh, let's run to Marxism, right? Each according to their abilities for each according to their needs. I don't think that's a really good biological answer either. Um, but I do think that reconciling that notion of determinism and its implications for the kind of way we set up and continue to foment society is really powerful. And I think a lot of people avoid it for that reasons. It's also in the, in particular in the US, a lot of those assumptions about free will are very interwoven with religious conviction and we are a highly religious country um and so to have certain conversations of that pull at some of the tenets and fabric of particular uh you know we're mostly christian country like a lot of the strains of sort of all the old testament religions are built on this degree of sort of like divinity and or omnipotence and omnipresence being compatible with a degree of free will that's complicated to understand and so it's much easier for us to just avoid the question um so there's a lot of reasons we have a lot of incentive to avoid thinking about it but i do think it's subtle and, and for me it's really just humbling like i i really try to remember that it's you know it, it's not i don't think it's painful to say that like you know the, the only reason that i'm sitting in the chair talking to you and not in ukraine right now fearing for my life or not ever existing at all is by nothing that I can attribute to myself. I don't, in any meaningful way, I don't take credit for my successes. I don't, sometimes I try not to take credit for my failures or, or responsibility for them either. I, there's a sort of like, eh, like I, I don't know, but that's hard. It's hard to live a, a healthy, moral, valued, ethical life that way and feel like you have it. So I, I struggle with that all the time. It's something that I do think I'm, I'm tiptoeing around potentially some answers, but I remain in a state of, curiosity about and it's yeah. uh you know as, a, as an athletic coach it's, it's really running is such an interesting way in which that manifests because you know to the extent that hard work is an innate trait mm. that's that's hard uh that's hard for some people to get or at least in, if not innate trait it's like your ability to like go the extra mile when you probably should quit maybe that was decided for you by the time you were 12 because you did or didn't grow up in certain circumstances. There is some psychological evidence that like real toughness is bred by having a good amount of adversity, but not quite too much. Like mm -hmm. you don't want to be, have too cushy a situation uh, where you can weasel out anything, but also too much adversity to the point where it's trauma will just be defeating. 
Um, but who can control the trauma they're brought when they're a child that has all those formative experiences? So it's, right. um, anyway, thanks for coming to my TED talk. It's been great. I hope you learned nothing. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, that's my diatribe on this. Thanks for getting me going on that. I, it, I, it's, it's something I struggle with a lot psychologically is to think about how to evaluate my own actions, my own feelings about my actions, whether it's pride or remorse or something in light of the control we may or may not have. Yeah, well, you know, again, too too much to unpack in too little time. Um, maybe you and I will hang out some another time. What we can I love it. We can love it. dissect this off camera, but um, you made me think about. So within your uh, diatribe, I'll call it. Um, that's that's very nice of you. Thank you. <laughs> that's about the, as nice as good as you could have given that. I appreciate it. No, no, no. It's, there's a lot of good stuff. So um, I think you were talking about being hard determinism. Like basically we're a causal chain of events and we don't actually have um, free will is kind of the conclusion you come to. It makes me wonder about the the concept of whether we as humans are more akin to like a superorganism than a collection of individuals and whether if we're if we're like a, if we're a superorganism again for the listener I'm talking out of my ass here but if if we're a superorganism then you might suppose that like our laws and punishments in any given place is an attempt to correct what we collectively would believe to be unhealthy behavior for the propagation of the species moving forward. That's fascinating. So we sort of looking at humans as like a, a school of fish in and of an organism as itself. That, right. That's, I, I think there's certainly a very good lens of analysis to be had with that point of view. And certainly in a democratic society, that is probably more accurate. I mean, the, the history of societies in which the sort of fish had some say in how the school moved uh, was pretty limited. So I think just historically speaking, while that might have been true accidentally or peripherally, generally speaking, most societies historically were sort of governed in a very authoritarian way until mm -hmm. more recently. Um, and so they're much more likely to just be the product of what that particular individual or ruling class wanted to do to promulgate their clan, their tribe within the tribe, as opposed to as a whole. But yeah, I do think over time, like you could look at the constructions of, of law, expectations of cultural norms and civility as what the species at any given point in time in a given space and context is ultimately aiming to create, to sort of increase its collective utility so it can promulgate, procreate, et cetera. There's probably a lag though, right? So like there's, especially in a post-industrialized society, there's probably right. a big lag in which like you know, the laws we have for climate change, perfect example, right? Like if that were fully true, we would be spending all of our time and energy on climate change because it is an existential threat that is around the corner. We are clearly still like focusing on last year's shit. And that's also because a lot of the people who have the power to do stuff are on their way out or older, right? It's, you know, one way to look at society is a consistent transfer of wealth and resources from young to the old. Um, and that promulgates over time too. So mm -hmm. like, uh, there's that, <laughs> I always laughed about this when, uh, oh God, this is going to be such an odd esoteric meme reference, but I suppose I haven't gotten enough dad jokes in. So maybe this will count. Uh, there was a couple of years ago, I'm a big basketball fan. And when Magic Johnson was still an executive with the Lakers before he was leaving, 
there was a great online clip of somebody asking him a question and he was just kind of very flippant going like, I'm not going to be here. And there was a great meme going around that was like, boomers talking about climate change. I'm not going to be here. Right. And there, there's a little bit of that. It's like no one's intentionally trying to make it worse, but yeah. their incentives, given where they are and them as organisms, and they have a lot of the power. I'm not throwing this at boomers in particular, but older generations have always historically, therefore, become more conservative over time, typically than younger generations, because their needs and things change and their access to power changes as well. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's probably a lag despite the increasing speed of stuff post industrialization. I love the conception of society as a mechanism for its, uh, its, you know, its laws, its structures, et cetera, its cultures as a way of determining its sort of collective promulgation future. I love that. It's like society society is its own health, but to, to, you know, you mentioned it being more likely to be true in a democratic society, less likely to be true in an authoritarian society, but I don't know that that necessarily negates my thought because mm. if you think about it, so if my idea holds true, then the idea of societies as the collective superorganism of humans, we're shifting constantly to try to promote overall health, which is more humans into the future, right? So if by you know its selection of authoritarianism, if that is in a sense oppressive, a la Putin, and it is making organisms, humans, die out, then a shift to democracy could itself be a change in the superior's behavior to try to make itself more healthy. So it doesn't, I don't think it necessarily negates the idea to yeah, say- Yeah, you're zooming out, right? You're basically saying that like the political status of an entity at any given time will adjust like authoritarianism worked and therefore it was allowed to happen in some form. Right, until it, it didn't work and then it has to adapt. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Although I my, my intuition is- it's not like the those in authoritarian power are who have all the power to like, I suppose if you're looking long-term, you could say that adaptations sort of like happen with or without them. And sometimes it just takes longer. Right. My intuition is that now in a society where like China, where you can really like know what everybody's doing and thinking at any given time, if you want, not thinking necessarily, but pretty close to it. Yeah. The amount of control that authoritarians have now um, is probably at a point where without some sort of, kind of non-species level, non-superorganism promulgation won't change. Like authoritarians aren't going to just give it up because they're like, you know what? Optimal global utility is better if we change things up. So I'm going to go for it. They're just like, I am in charge. And that's it. Um, That's where I think you go with like the mechanism of revolution. Yeah. From the the bottom I guess I just think that like revolution in as far as that being a way of, if you conceptualize revolution as an exercise of the superorganism needing to restructure itself, I actually just think it's less likely. I think that like, power is getting too absolute, like it's too easy to kill everyone quickly for lack of a better, right. In a way that in the past, like, you know, uh, in the past, like, this is the classic second amendment argument of like, you know, we need to take arms up so that our own government can insurrect us. It's like, yeah, you need to take your own B2 up there to figure out how to like, that's not happening. So, um, so there's, there's a, there's a sense in which like our ability to self govern as a super organism, I think has been undone by the means of control that we've been able to enable ourselves. We may have outgrown that, that ability that we had in the past to kind of self-regulate that way, which is, which is worrisome, which is worrisome for sure. Yeah. Um, before we run out of time, uh, I want to ask, 
if we go to Endeavor Run, are we going to have these same kind of conversations? <laughs> what what happens there? Are we, is there actually running that goes on? What like what what do you do? What, like wh- why are you doing Endeavor Run? Yeah. So the answer is is yes if you want. Um, <laughs> the uh, the idea behind Endeavor Run, well, it was it was I'll give I'll spare the whole conception. Certainly, could check out the site and and others who are interested in Endeavor Run to to check it out. But I really have envisioned Endeavor Run to be we call it a retreat. Uh, at least most of what we do are retreats, and I see retreat as not as a combination of of camp and workshops, um, and not like the HR compliance workshops that you have to go to. But you're not just going to a place with cool other runners to hang out, run a little bit and chill in a cool spot the way a lot of camps do, where it's, you know, you go to meet this one person who finished sixth at Boston in the seventies. And you go like, that's, that's super cool. I'm really not knocking that. We're just kind of playing in a different space in the market, which is our goal is to help people who want to kind of take their running to the next level, do that. So yes, we go and we run and it's for all paces, truly. And all, we've got people, we had somebody who came with her aunt, she was 17. We've got folks in their late sixties and seventies who come at all speeds. We've got people who are really sub elite and are trying to get under 17 for their 5k. We've got folks who are trying to get up to running three miles consecutively. It is, it is about you thinking of part of yourself and your identity as a runner and wanting to meet some of the best coaches and athletes in the world in a place where, you know, you can kind of be in that sort of pro training camp that you always sort of feel like you need, oh man, if I could just go and train like a pro for a few days and get things right, I would improve that. That's what we're trying to put together. So you know, if you came to, we recently, uh, at the time of recording, just not too long ago, had our event in Austin for a couple of days. There was running. We had our physical therapists there doing mobility enhancement workshops where folks were doing self-assessments. Our registered dietitian talked extensively about, uh, you know, race fueling and nutrition for different, you know, if you're running to lose weight, if you're running to run fast, if you're running to go far and sitting down individually. We've got some really renowned runners and coaches there to help you go over your race plans or make a plan or think about planning. We've got writers there who talk about, you know, running and identity and things like that. Um, I bring personally a lot of the developmental workshops that I do often in corporations adapted for individuals as runners. So we do a lot of um, not just sort of like the mental side of running insofar as sports psychology is concerned, which is typically the application of cognitive behavioral perspectives and then uh, principles to sport, but we do more psychodynamic developmental stuff about like, why do we run and why do we sabotage ourselves as runners and uh, where is our identity is that? So it's kind of a, a hodgepodge of things, but ultimately, as I say to folks, typically when we do our sort of opening spiel, it's like, we're with great people who care enough about themselves as runners to come and spend time here and run in a cool place at a great time. It's going to be fun no matter what. Mm-hmm. I want folks to learn. I want folks to feel like the moment they walked in is different than the moment they walked out insofar as their ability to go and do what they want to do with their running, think about what it means to them and have that kind of experience. And that was something we just didn't really see in the market. We, we didn't really see, we didn't go into it because there was a market hole. Don't get me wrong. But when we were thinking about, you know, what we could put together, um, our retreats have really become on to take on that flavor, which is um, it's not, it's not just a couple of days of fun camp. It is that, but it's a lot more without being corny or silly, or it's, you know, we don't come there to sing Kumbaya or anything like that. So there's mm-hmm. no, um, you know, it's not, uh, it's just about connecting with other people who have that passion in a way that's very real and low key and fun. And we goof around and we like, it's, it's silly, right? You you can probably tell if you're listening to this still that 
I can't go more than a couple minutes without vacillating between serious and silly. And um, I think the retreats probably have a little bit of my personality there in that way, uh, just as the, as the program manager, but uh, it's been really cool. And um, it's been really neat to see folks who've come back, new folks who keep coming in, the kind of community we're building. We're doing something new um, that, that we're gonna try to do, which is for anyone who's running CIM, who signed up for the California International Marathon this winter, we're gonna do like a virtual remote training collective, I guess is the way to put it, it's a pod. You can get plans from us, you can get discounts on shoes and stuff, et cetera. Um, we'll meet on Zoom, we'll have a Slack and we'll meet up eventually and have a great time in Sacramento in December. And we're sort of trying that out. And I'm not 100% sure, but I think in order to be equitable and inclusive, we're going to probably make it a sort of suggested donation-based program. Uh, pay what you can. Here's what we think this is probably worth. If you make this much, you can consider this much, but you don't have to. Um, because the irony of running is it's a sport that anyone can access if you have a pair of shoes or even if you don't. Mm -hmm. um, but also to do it really well and do the kind of things we do. Like we get that it's expensive too. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to trying to walk a bit of a middle ground there and, and give folks a little bit more access. So uh, I hope it wasn't too comprehensive an answer to a good question. But uh, yeah, there are lots of times where we're having beers and talking about this kind of thing or or we're just, you know, shooting the shit about which pro just ran this time at this race or um, talking about which marathons we'd like to run in or the local 5K or just getting to know people that clearly have the same passion as us. So it's it's uh, it's been pretty cool. It sounds like a good time. Um, Jake, we are running down on time a little bit. So sure. um, if you've watched the end of my other episodes, you know I ask everybody the same question for an entire season. So this season's question is, how do you celebrate your wins? Ooh. Pre or post-pandemic? <laughs> uh, it's a great question. How do I celebrate my wins? Well, I think I probably... I think I probably, and I don't know if this is healthy, but with an intense amount of sort of meta reflection on celebration of wins in the moment, like I probably feel pride. I probably feel excitement. I probably seek, I know I'm a recognition driven person. I seek the recognition of people I care about, even people I don't know that well. But at the very same time, I'm also consistently peddling that philosophic dialogue about like, well, did I just do anything like that? I didn't win anything. Was that actually like, why am I pride is such an interesting emotion uh, in particular for me to, to grapple with uh, insofar as some of those philosophic convictions. Um, so any celebration. Um, yeah. I, I like to share it with people I care about. I really crave the admiration of, of others in many ways and, and try to be honest with myself about that being a real driver for me and try to use that in a healthy way. And also try to mix that with a degree of humility about, you know, what I can actually reasonably take control of and um, hopefully learn, uh, you know, my, my entire profession, whether it's through Endeavor Run, whether it's through my, my work in executive coaching and leadership development and training and some of the other stuff that I just do is, is really focused on trying to cultivate continuous curiosity um, and, and being open to uh, how my own paradigms will hopefully shift and continue to shift over time and just that being the, the constant. So. I try to sub up my wins by tempering down my sort of uh, limbic reactions of, of pride and swelling and needing adulation uh, with appreciation and thoughtfulness and, and learning. Um, and, uh, and also lately, non-alcoholic beer. Uh, I have really enjoyed a good athletic brewing 
um, and a cold shower. Uh, I've been trying to do the cold cold water immersion thing mm-hmm. to myself mm-hmm. up a little bit doing, doing that. So um, yeah, I think uh, I think that's because or or junk food, Oreos, fruit snacks, all the sort of things that I hate myself for enjoying so much. I have a very very sweet tooth, so um, I think those things. But uh, yeah, trying to celebrate it with others is great. Um, and and lately, um, you know, when there are wins that I'm get excited about, I you know it's uh, it's usually just picking my daughter up and kissing her on the nose and holding her, even if she doesn't understand why that, that, that to me is like, that that's, that's the wind share, I suppose. Um, cool question. Thank you for that. That's a really cool question. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, people want to get in touch with you, check out Endeavor Run, um, executive coaching, any of that kind of stuff. Where, where can they get in touch with you? Anywhere. Um, I'm probably too accessible, but certainly for Endeavor Run, check us out endeavorrun.com. You can email me directly, jakeendeavorrun.com or, we're not on Twitter, but we're, uh, we do have an account, but we just didn't want anyone to create a ghost account and uh, pretend to be us. But uh, Instagram, uh, my, my colleague uses it and, and I have X. So you can DM us, you can email us, et cetera, for Endeavor Run. If folks are interested in uh, any of the other stuff I do in my professional world, you can absolutely hit me up from my website. Um, easy to find me on LinkedIn. I think there's only one Jake Tuber, at least recently, that's got a LinkedIn profile. It's a plus of having a kind of strange name. Um, or on my website, uh, which is abbreviated uh, tyconadvisory.com. Um, but yeah, just just Google me. I'm sure you'll find me. I, I try to be pretty responsive. It's pretty important to me to try to be responsive. So um, I would love to hear from folks, whether it's just questions they have. If they have resources to help me answer some of the questions for myself and, and others um, that they'd be willing to share, I'm always excited to, to read and grab more stuff. So uh, please do reach out. It's, it's, never, it's never not interesting to hear from someone I don't know who's also curious right like it's it sucks if you hear from someone you don't know and they're just trolling you but generally speaking like it's sometimes I've heard people say like oh you know I heard you on this show or this and I kind of wanted to reach out but I wasn't you know I was forget it like consider us old friends over the hump um it's it's great to hear from folks and to just trying to learn from them and, and with them and be helpful if I can so any way you can um reach out and as you and I were joking earlier Jesse like LinkedIn, I get a lot of shitty LinkedIn messages, so it's nice to get a real one. Uh, yeah. So feel free to, to hit me up there. I'm, I'm, LinkedIn also was the kind of, like, will send me a bajillion notifications, so I can't ignore it for that long. That's a, sadly, is a pretty good way to get in touch with me. Um, but yeah, you can just email me, jake at endeavorrun.com, um, and I'm happy to respond. Awesome. Jake, thanks for hanging out with me. Thanks so much for hanging out with me. I so enjoyed it. I hope uh, this wasn't too painful for you.